Let us pray. Lord, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Not very many uh, sermons actually are brought to you by something. In fact, if you watch most sporting things, it'll say, you know, uh, touchdown, uh, sponsored by something. Uh, the extra point always has the all-state net that goes up. But I'll tell you that today, today's sermon is brought to you by Lucy and Linus. Uh, it is the brother and sister in the Peanuts cartoon strip. Uh, Lucy, as you probably know, is the one who dispenses psychiatric advice for five cents, and Linus is the one with the security blanket. Now, there's a cartoon, maybe you've seen this before, in which Linus says to Lucy, why are you always so anxious to criticize me? Lucy says, I just think I have a knack for seeing other people's faults. Linus says, what about your own faults? Lucy shrugs and says, I have a knack for overlooking them. Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at a story where a few religious people took that same knack to an extreme, the inability to show mercy. And they did this in spite of what Lamentations chapter 3 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end, they are new every morning. Now, I'm just old-fashioned enough, I guess, to believe that the Bible is true, every last single word of it, and this verse has two words in it that you can build your life on. The word never and the word every. Never, as in his mercy, never comes to an end. And every, as in his mercy, is brand new every day. Now this morning it's my hope and prayer that everyone here is able to enjoy or to bask in the experience of God's grace and mercy in a new way each and every single day. It's my hope and prayer today that you become an enthusiastic and devoted, what I would call, second chancer. I don't know if you know what a second chancer is yet, but we're going to talk about that. Now, some people have a hard time uh, with the idea of the second chance, uh, usually not as it applies to them, but as it applies to other people. Now, a second chance means in their eyes that someone is getting away with something that they shouldn't be getting away with. And some people, believe it or not, see it as their job to make sure it doesn't happen. I mean, these people have kind of an authority complex. They set themselves up as judge, jury, and executioner. And their problem is that while they're casting judgment on everyone else, they neglect to actually take a good look in the mirror and look at themselves. And today we're going to take a look at a story in which some very self-righteous, by-the-book religious people were forced to do just that. Here's the story. It comes from John chapter 8. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, 
Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It's a rather interesting story. A woman who had been caught in the very act of committing adultery was brought to Jesus. Now, you saw that according to the law of Moses, the Old Testament, she could be put to death. They could stone her to death. Now, the interesting thing is to be exact, the law in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy states that both the woman and the man should be put to death. My question every time I read that story is, where was the man? Where is the man in this story? Well, the answer is we don't know. But these religious people were ready to see this sinful woman pay the price. And they asked Jesus what should be done with her. Now, I think all of you recognize that this is really kind of a setup. The religious leaders were always trying to bait and trap Jesus. And on this day, they were trying to back him into a corner in which he either had to contradict the law of Moses <coughs> or to comply with the execution of a sinful woman. Whichever option Jesus would choose, they were going to use that against him. And so they demanded a sign from Jesus. And what did he say to them? Well, he says nothing at first. In fact, he just bends over and he began writing in the sand. Now, here's another question. What did he write? What did he write? Again, Scripture doesn't say we don't have an idea. John, the author of the Gospel, doesn't tell us. He just says that Jesus wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him, what do you say, Jesus? I mean, what should we do? You know the law. Should we obey the law or not? And then Jesus stayed silent for a few moments and finally offered the accusers a kind of a simple response. He said, in effect, go ahead and stone the woman. Put her to death, as you would think the law allows you to do. And then he added one more little stipulation. Let the one without sin throw the first stone. And then he knelt and he wrote some more in the sand. And the Bible says that one by one, beginning with the oldest, the accusing men put down their stones, dropped the rock, and walked away. Now, i got to tell you, everybody has a theory about this story. I'm going to share you my theory. I think the way this would have been done is that the oldest of the group would have been standing in the front row, in front of the group. As accusers, they had been leading the charge. Being in the front of the group, they would have been the first to see exactly what Jesus was writing in the sand. And since he said... Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Maybe his writing was kind of a preemptive strike against any one of them who may have claimed to be without sin. Maybe what Jesus wrote in the sand is, one of you is an embezzler. One of you is having an affair. One of you is the man who is caught in adultery with this woman. 
One of you committed murder. One of you is planning to rob your neighbor, and so on and so on. And I think the older men, the ones staying close to Jesus, looked down, saw what he'd written, and they said in Hebrew, yikes. <laughs> yikes. He knows something about me. I'm going to just leave this rock here, and I'm going to be on my way. And as the older men left... The younger man probably stepped forward and made the same discovery that Jesus had written something specific about these men in the sand that they could not ignore. So one by one, they laid down their stones, they dropped the rock, and they walked away. Now, I'm going to just tell you, that's my theory. It did not come off of Mount Sinai. I did not receive that from a burning bush in the middle of a wilderness somewhere. But it just always seems to fit. Now, but here, friend, this is the point. In order to live in the newness of God's grace and mercy each and every day, you have to drop the rock. You've got to let go of this all-too-human tendency to judge other people. You have to, as someone once said, resign your position as general manager of the universe. And maybe let someone else be in charge for a while while you work at improving yourself. It's as simple as this. You can't be successful in your new life as a Christ follower if you spend all your time casting judgment on other people. If you want to experience a new beginning in any area of your life, in your family, in your relationship to God, with your friendships, uh, your marriage, anything else, you have to let go of that holier-than-thou tendency that we all have and treat each other with the same grace as you have received in your life. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he wrote, By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. In other words, friends, you, you, you cannot judge other people and walk in newness of life. The spirit of condemnation is kind of like a, a cancer inside of you that will eat at your soul until it finally destroys every good thing that God wants to create within you. And so this morning, as I kind of finish this message series, I want to talk about what it really means to be a second chancer in life and how we can avoid this, at least I'm not as bad as those other people syndrome that plagues so many people who actually call themselves Christ followers. So the question is, do you want to experience God's never-ending grace new every morning? Do you want to live in the land of the second chance? If so, I'm going to challenge you this morning to closely observe three nevers, three nevers that I believe that all second chancers live by. Here's the first one. All second chancers never forget that they received the second chance. Now, Jesus also told another story about uh, a king, uh, and he, one of his servants owed him thousands upon thousands of dollars, a debt that he had absolutely no way of paying back. And the king ordered the man sent to prison, but you may know the story. The man begged for, for mercy, and he said, please be patient with me. I'll pay back eventually. And the king released him, actually forgave this debt. Even though he owed him thousands of dollars, he said, let it go. You owe me nothing. Your debt is forgiven. 
But we know that on the way out, he came across a fellow servant who owed him a few bucks. And the Bible says he actually literally began to choke that man, demanding to be paid. And that fellow servant begged for mercy, saying, please be patient, I'll pay you back when I can. But that man refused, actually had that man and his family thrown into the debtor's prison. Now, eventually, what happens? The word gets back to the king. The man whose giant debt had been forgiven had been shown no mercy to a fellow servant who owed him a great amount, and the king was absolutely furious. And this is what he said. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in his anger, the king had that man sent to prison where he was sentenced to stay until his debt had been paid. And in that day, chances are it would have been never. Now, Jesus tells us a lot of stories for a lot of different reasons. I believe he tells us this story to remind us, never forget that you have been forgiven a tremendous debt. There's not a single one of us here this morning that has not been forgiven and forgiven much. Therefore, everybody else deserves as much mercy, the same mercy that God has already shown you. Now, those sinful woman's accusers that day didn't understand their relationship with God is based on grace and not on merit. They had forgotten about their own debt. And any time you're tempted to judge another person, you need to kind of flip back through your back pages of your own life and remind yourself of the grace that's already been extended to you. Here's the second thing. Second chancers never build themselves up by putting other people down. Jesus told another story, another parable. This had to do with a couple of guys who went to the temple to pray. One was an extremely religious Pharisee. The other was described as a sinful tax collector. The Pharisee marched himself right up to God's altar He stood all by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men who cheat and commit adultery. I thank you, most of all, that I'm not like that back row sinful tax collector. After all, I fast and I pay my tithe. Well, we know that the tax collector who sat in the back row, it says he did not even dare lift his eyes up. Or stand in front with the religious elite. Instead, it said he beat on his chest and said very simply, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. Now, Jesus said, I tell you that that man, that tax collector, that sinner, rather than the other guy, that Pharisee, went home justified before God. Now, that story always reminds me of something that Thomas Carlyle said. Thomas Carlyle said, confess your own sins, not your neighbor's sins. The greatest fault is to be conscious of none but the faults faults of others. Here's fair warning. If your spiritual defense has ever been, at least I'm not as bad as some people, you're probably not going to have a whole lot of success in your Christian walk. That's kind of a shaky foundation for any Christian life. You know, God, I thank you that I'm, I'm at least better than the worst people I know. 
And yet, there are a lot of people who base their entire spiritual experience on that. Their hope of salvation is somehow that they're better than other people. Now, the fact is, you are better than some other people, at least from the way God, the way the world looks at it. There's some pretty bad people out there. I mean, I seriously doubt that any of you have been around beheading people lately. I don't think so. I have been gone a week, no telling what happened. But I, I seriously doubt it. And I can assure you that uh, as far as I know you, none of you would rank among the ten most wanted people in this world. Um, but I'm also going to tell you that none of that is going to help you in your relationship with God. I mean, just remember, this is Adrian Rogers who said, God doesn't grade by the curve. He grades by the cross. You receive your salvation the same way everyone else received their salvation. It is the free gift of God's grace through Jesus who gave his life for you as a ransom for your sins. That's why I say second chances don't trust in their own righteousness. And they never try to inflate their righteousness by comparing themselves to other people. Second chancers always put their hope in the cross, not in their own feeble attempts at goodness. So if you want to live every day basking in the newness of God's never-ending mercy, let me give you a third never. Second chancers never pass up a chance to pass it on. Another story from the Bible. Jesus and his disciples were passing through Samaria, which in itself is interesting that they would walk through Samaria. But while his disciples went into town to buy some supplies, uh, we know that Jesus sat and he waited at a well. At about midday, it says that a woman came along to draw water from the well, and it's at that point that Jesus struck up a conversation with her. Now, this is highly unusual. First of all, he was a rabbi. Rabbis normally only taught their students. Second of all, he was a man. And third of all, he was a Jewish man. So it's very unusual that a Jewish man would make a conversation not only with a woman, but with a Samaritan woman, and a Samaritan woman with a rather interesting past. Still, in spite of her past, Jesus talked to her about her life about what it really means to worship God. And he told her about the living water that he could give her that would take away her thirst and satisfy her soul and lead her to eternal life. Now, all the other women had went to the well early in that morning to draw water. This woman came in midday, probably to avoid them, because she considered herself too sinful to take part in the social life of the community. But all of this changed after her encounter with Jesus. The Bible says in John 4, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. I'm not going to sing this, but some of you know this song. That's the way it is with God's love. Once you've experienced it, you want to sing it. It's fresh like spring. You want to pass it on. 
See, that's what second chancers do. They pass on grace, not guilt. They lead people to Jesus, not to judgment. See, sometimes that's all religious people are interested in doing, is like pointing their fingers at everybody else and telling everybody else how bad they are. This is how Billy Graham put it. He said, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. Pretty straightforward. I want you to go back to the story of that woman that was brought to Jesus, caught in the act of adultery. I want you to imagine a different kind of scenario that could have taken place. Imagine the group of men bringing that woman to Jesus and saying, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. We know this is a serious sin. Some of us know firsthand how destructive it can be. We also know that we serve a merciful God who does not treat us as our sins deserve, but who has compassion on his children. And so, Jesus, this is our question. How can we restore this woman? How can we help her put her life back together again and rebuild her marriage? How can we help her experience the same kind of mercy that we've experienced in our lives, the mercy which is never-ending and the mercy that is new every morning? Now, can you imagine a conversation like that taking place? I'll tell you, no Pharisee would ever say such a thing. But I'll tell you who would. It's a second chancer. That's because these people follow what Paul was talking to, talking about when he's talking to the Galatians. He said, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, do what? Restore that person gently. But watch yourself so that you're also not tempted. But carry each other's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, I got to tell you, friends, I, I know what it's like to be forgiven. I know what it's like to have someone come into my life and demonstrate God's mercy. I'm sure most all of you have. I understand what it means to start over, to get a second chance. That's why I'm compelled to share that with other people. And so I just say, never forget, all of us, all of us need a second chance. We also need to remember that we never build ourselves up by putting somebody else down. We never pass up a chance to pass it on. Now, like Lucy in that cartoon, uh, you may have the knack for pointing out the faults of other people and overlooking your own faults. But that knack also has the the uh, potential to destroy your personal your personal spiritual life. See, when you're you're prone to take that rock, and there's a couple of a couple of football analogies that come to mind. Uh, ball carriers are taught to hold that rock high and tight, and they're told not to drop that rock. And they're thinking about a football. But there are far too many people who've got that rock of contempt towards other people or a lack of forgiveness, and they hold that sucker high and tight, and they're not going to give it up for anything. But I want to tell you this morning, you're going to learn to drop it and extend the mercy to other people. When you're tempted to hold it high and tight or when you're tempted to throw that rock of judgment at somebody else that's fallen, you need to hit the pause button and take a moment to remember who you are and how much you need God's grace to be at work in your life, and you just need to drop that rock and walk away from it. 
Instead of casting that first stone, take the first step towards mercy and reconciliation in another broken person's life. I mean, no one's asking you to become an enabler to other people or endorse their wrongdoing or even condone their sins. I mean, Jesus didn't even condone the sins. Okay, there's no one here to accuse you, but you go and don't do this anymore. That's basically what he told her. But what Jesus is asking you, in fact, he's really challenging all of us, is to knock off this knack of focusing on the faults of other people and put down this rock of judgment and instead reach out with the open arms of mercy and reconciliation. Now, we've wrapped up this message series, and I'm going to just review this for you one more time. And maybe, just maybe, my prayer is always that we've all learned something in these six weeks. Kind of small up there, but in the first week we talked about casting your net again and again until God fills it to overflowing. You just keep at it. The other part we learned was to close the door on the past and stop looking behind you and instead focus on what lies ahead of you. Better days are always out there. The third week you've talked about loving first and serving second. Then we learned about what do I really need? What do I really want? What do I really believe? And hopefully we came to the conclusion that what we really need is more of Jesus. What do we really want? More of Jesus. What do we really believe in Jesus? And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about learning to say, not my will, but yours be done. And today we end that all up by saying, instead of casting the first stone, take the first step toward mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read your word, we must certainly see ourselves in your word. It's pretty easy for us sometimes to stand with the Pharisees and point the accusing finger. It's much more difficult for us to drop that rock and extend a hand of mercy. We pray that as we think about casting our net and closing the doors, loving first and serving second, and, and praying not your will, but not our will, but yours be done, uh, that we would um, grow in you each and every day. Father, be with us, we pray, in this journey. In Jesus' name, amen.